Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we are very conscious that this is a big chapter and it's impossible for us in the time allotted to uh, delve into all the truth that is contained here. But Father, what we do delve into, we ask that you'll apply to our hearts and minds that we might be people who are truly on mission in our generation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Leighton Ford, who was the brother-in-law of the great evangelist Billy Graham, was once preaching at an open-air evangelistic crusade in Halifax in Nova Scotia. Billy Graham himself was also scheduled to speak there the next night, but he'd arrived in the city a day early, and so he decided he would go incognito to the meeting at which his brother-in-law was speaking. And so he sat on the grass at the rear of the crowd, and because he was wearing a hat and dark glasses, nobody seemed to recognise him. But sitting directly in front of him was an elderly gentleman who seemed to be listening very intently to the gospel presentation that was being made. And when the invitation was given for people to uh, demonstrate their commitment to Christ and come forward, Billy Graham decided that he was going to do a little bit of personal evangelism. He tapped the man on the shoulder and he said, would you like to accept Christ? I'll be happy to walk down with you if you want to. The old man looked him up and down and thought over it for a minute. And then he said, nah, I think I'll wait till the big gun comes tomorrow night. That man's response echoes something that perhaps we subconsciously think when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to witnessing uh, to our faith. And that is the best job and the best people for evangelism are those that we refer to as the big guns. Those people who have been committed to a ministry of evangelism and yet we know instinctively, even as we think that, that to every one of us God has committed the ministry of reconciliation. Yes, as 2 Corinthians 5 uh, reminds us, we are all ambassadors for Christ. We are people through whom God makes his appeal to the world. We are people who are on mission in our generation. And yet so often, what is it that holds us back? It seems to me it is so often fear that holds us back from engaging with those who need to hear the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How often do we excuse ourselves out of fear, the fear of not knowing where to start, the fear of not knowing what to say, and the biggest fear of all, according to Leighton Ford in his book, Good News is for Sharing, the fear of being rejected or ridiculed for sharing what we know to be the truth of God's word. Well, as we come to Acts 17 this morning, we are given some insights as to how we might deal with those fears when it comes to sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be impossible, as I prayed earlier, for us to, uh, in the time allotted to us, to get exegetically do justice to every verse in this chapter, to draw out the, every morsel of truth that we could possibly construct here, because we could probably do two or three sermons in this chapter alone. So what I want to do this morning is simply draw out a couple of important principles 
that will help us as we seek to share the good news of the gospel, principles that will help us to gain a divine perspective on those three fears that I mentioned a moment ago. The fear of not knowing where to start, the fear of not knowing what to say, and the fear of rejection that comes through hostility or indifference. And so I want to do this by buzzing like a drone in the sky as we go backwards and forwards over this chapter this morning and we review the three different evangelistic situations in which the Apostle Paul and his companions find themselves. If we cast our eyes back to the latter part of chapter 15, we see by way of introduction that these events in chapter 17 take place during Paul's second missionary journey. Following the Jerusalem Council, Paul and Barnabas, you may remember, decided that they wanted to revisit the churches that they had planted on their first journey and to strengthen and to help them as they continued towards maturity in Christ. And so, also, and also they would use the results of the Jerusalem Council to inform them concerning their relationship to the gospel. And so as they do that, the dispute arises between the two of them because they disputed over whether John Mark should accompany them because he had failed them on one separate occasion. And so they were caused to have this dispute caused them to separate. And so Paul takes a disciple by the name of Silas to accompany he and Luke and then um, Timothy, who joins them along in Derby. And from there they travel, we read in the scriptures, through the areas of Phrygia and Galatia to the northern side of the province of, uh, of uh, Asia because the Holy Spirit, we saw last week, had forbidden Paul to preach in that area. And he'd also forbidden him to preach in the area of Bithynia. So they come to the coastal city of Troas. And Paul is given there that vision of a man of Macedonia urging him to come over to Macedonia to help them and concluding that this was God's call upon his life to preach the gospel in Macedonia or modern-day Greece, uh, he and his companions set sail, ultimately arriving in Philippi, where we saw last week Paul ministered firstly to Lydia, that seller of purple, and the other women at the place of prayer down by the riverside. Their encounter, however, with the demon-possessed woman led them to an arrest, followed by a beating and then a stint in jail, where Paul and Silas were imprisoned, but where God miraculously intervened in the form of an earthquake. And that led to another gospel opportunity where the jailer and his family came to faith in Christ. And because the authorities had unjustly treated them as Roman citizens, they could not get them out of town fast enough. And so the next day, Paul and his companions travel to Thessalonica and so begins another chapter of ministry. You know, as we review the events that take place in these three cities, Thessalonica, Berea and Athens, we might be forgiven for thinking that Paul and his companions were beggars for punishment. They always seemed to find themselves in some sort of trouble. Those who opposed them in Thessalonica uh, stirred up the local branch of rent a crowd, an angry mob who sought to attack the home where they were staying. And so they were forced to move on to Berea, which was a bit off the beaten track. It wasn't on the main Ignatian Way uh, where Paul and his companions were travelling. 
And so if they thought that they were going to get a bit of a reprieve there, they were sadly mistaken. Despite the fact that there was no social media, no email communication in those days, word got back very quickly to their detractors in Thessalonica, and they quickly came down to stir up trouble once again. And so while Timothy and Silas remained behind in Berea, Paul is hurriedly sent on to Athens by sea. And while he waited for his companions to come and join him, we read in the scriptures there in verse 16 that his heart was stirred by the level of idolatry that he saw in Athens. He could not help but preach the gospel to share the good news of Jesus Christ in the synagogue and in the marketplace. And that led, of course, to an invitation to speak at the Areopagus, which once had been the judicial centre of the city. It used to be that, but now it was much, nothing much more than a council of philosophy and morals and with very limited power. And so having shared the gospel with them, whilst there was no threat of physical violence on this occasion, the response to the gospel was much more muted and it seems only a few people believed. And as we review these three instances then of Paul and his companions' gospel ministry, what are we to make of their actions? What principles can we extract from their interactions with those whom they shared the gospel? How does what we read here in this chapter help us to deal with the fear of not knowing where to start? of not knowing what to say, and also the fear of rejection or ridicule. And so in considering this this morning, how we might address these fears, I simply want to draw out two principles that might help us to gain some divine perspective when it comes to these fears. And the very first of these is this. When it comes to being on mission, when it comes to sharing the good news, the gospel of Jesus... Where we start may be important, but where we end up is critical. If we go back to verse 2 of the chapter, you will notice that when Paul arrives in Thessalonica, the first thing he does is head to the local synagogue where the, of the Jews where he begins to share the gospel message. Jewish custom was that if in any city or town there was at least 10 male Jews in residence, they could form a synagogue, and it was formed for the purpose of uh, prayer and for the teaching of the scriptures of the Old Testament. And Paul's custom, we are told here in this passage of scripture, was to always start his evangelistic ministry in the local synagogue, from which we learn also down in verse 4, there were associated a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a sizable group of prominent women women who were perhaps wives of, of men who were the movers and shakers in the city. These were Gentiles who recognised that the God of the Jews was the one true God, but had not yet become full proselytes to the Jewish faith. That we see such a make, diverse makeup of people linked with the synagogue is not surprising, because Thessalonica was not only the capital of the province, it was one of the wealthiest and most influential cities in that area. It was on the trade route that extended from Rome all the way up through Macedonia and into the Orient itself. But I want you to notice what Paul does when he begins to share the gospel, the good news. 
He goes straight to the Scriptures. He goes to the place where these people were at, and that is his point of connection with them. These are people who accepted the Old Testament Scriptures as the sole authority for faith and practice. They understood that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. They accepted the truth of the scripture where it says in Psalm 119, your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And so knowing this, Paul could go straight to the scriptures as his point of connection with them and from those scriptures proclaimed to them that the Messiah, the Christ, the one for whom they were looking was in fact one who had to suffer, to die and to rise from the dead. No doubt he would have used passages like Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, the same passage you might remember that Philip shared with the Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza. And so by reasoning with them, by opening up the Scriptures and setting the Scriptures alongside his claim that Jesus was the fulfilment of that Old Testament uh, prophecy concerning the Messiah, he then proclaims the Gospel to them. Having started where they were at with their understanding of the truth of scriptures, Paul goes on to share the good news and he shares it by pointing his hearers to the cross. And we must always end up at the cross. We read that Paul did this for a total of three Sabbaths. But given that his epistle to the Thessalonians seems to cover a much longer period of ministry, it would seem that the Sabbaths were just the minimum time that he was allowed to preach in the synagogue before preaching in other areas. But the result of his preaching as such was this. Some of the Jews were persuaded, a small number of his own countrymen, but it was many of the God-fearing Greeks and also a significant number of the leading ladies of the city who came to faith in Christ. And that, of course, led to some serious trouble for Paul and his companions, and we'll mention that a bit later. Though not stated here, Paul's ministry in Berea would have followed a similar pattern. As he followed the custom of visiting the local synagogue, he starts with these people where they're at, with their commitment to the scriptures of the Old Testament, and then he moves them to consider the good news of Jesus, namely Jesus being fulfilled, the fulfillment of the Old Testament tr- teaching regarding the coming of the Messiah or the Christ. And the message that he would have preached to them was the same message that he preached to the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And here the response to his preaching is much more muted. I was sorry, it was much more positive. And we read that these Bereans were more noble. They were more open to the gospel eagerly examining the Scriptures daily, not just on the Sabbath, but daily, examining the Scriptures to see if the things that Paul was saying were true. They examined his teaching against the touchstone of Scripture. And we read that many of the God-fearing Greeks and women, along with many of the Jews, came to faith in Christ. Of course, as we mentioned earlier, it's not long before word gets back to Thessalonica and trouble erupts again. So Paul, as the chief spokesman, is sent down to Athens to get him out of harm's way. 
And when those who accompanied him returned home uh, and Paul was waiting for his companions to join him, it seems that he may have done the touristy thing and walked around the famous streets, taking in the sights and the wonders of this once great city, though it had been in decline in recent times from its heyday some 500 years before. It was still a city that was known for its politics, its culture, its religion and its philosophy. And you know, the thing that grabbed Paul's attention as he walked around this once great city was the fact that it was a city full of idols. They were everywhere, and it was estimated there were something like 30 to 40,000 statues of gods in Athens. And that's in a city that would have had just 10 to 12,000 people. No wonder one of the ancient writers makes this comment. It was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. And so Paul, as he sees the predominance of these idols in Athens, his spirit is provoked within him. He was greatly distressed, as the NIV puts it, because of what he saw. A city and its people totally saturated in the worship of false gods. And consequently, Paul again preaches, first of all, in the synagogue to the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, and then in the agora or the marketplace to anyone who would listen he proclaimed Jesus Christ and him crucified. It didn't matter whether he was confronted with groups who had differing philosophies of life, particularly two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. He still went ahead and proclaimed the gospel. The Epicureans, of course, were the hedonists of Paul's day. Whatever made you happy was the thing that you needed to pursue without any reference to what anyone else might have think of your choices. The pursuit of pleasure with the least amount of discomfort was your goal in life. The Stoics, on the other hand, were those who were the fatalists of Paul's day. Everything was predetermined. Whatever will be, will be. And the only way to respond to life is to be self-sufficient and self-disciplined, to keep a stiff upper lip no matter what your circumstances. That is the only way that you're going to navigate successfully through life. And into these two different worlds, views, comes Paul proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. Yes, the good news of Jesus. And as a result, however, he finds himself simply being accused of being a babbler, a seed picker, a bit like a scavenger bird that picks up bits and pieces of scraps or seeds along the roadway. He was no more than a peddler of bits and pieces of second-hand uh, bits of philosophy and beliefs that he picked up along the way. But the one thing we discover here in verse 21 that is this, that these Athenians with whom he was engaging, we are told, loved nothing more than debating new ideas and philosophies that came along. Cancel culture had not yet taken root in their society and so Paul is invited to share his philosophy of life on the Areopagus, and that's what he does. And so you ask the question, where do you start to share the gospel in a place where there's no acceptance of the authority of Scripture and where there are two prominent but very opposing worldviews? Well, Paul again starts at the place 
where people were at. Paul observes, in fact, that they were very religious. There was a hunger for the divine that permeated the whole of their lives. They were trying to fill that God-shaped vacuum in their lives in all sorts of different ways. And as he travelled around, he'd noticed as he wandered in that city an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And using this altar as his point of contact, some common ground on which to build his arguments, he starts where they're at and declares to them that the very God that they worshipped, the God that was unknown to them, the God whom they had no ability to comprehend, was the very God that he was going to proclaim to them. He was the one true God. And Paul understood this because as he declares back in chapter 14 and as he declares in his epistle in Romans chapter 1, God does not leave himself without a witness, whether it be in creation or the conscience of the human individual. There will inevitably be some point of connection that we can use to reason with non-believers about the claims of Christ. Don Richardson in that book, Perspectives on the World Christian Movement, provides a very useful account as to how this altar to the unknown God may have come about. It seems that around 600 BC there was a terrible plague that afflicted the city of Athens and it began to decimate the population. And so the people of the city offered up sacrifices to the thousands of gods that they worshipped in an effort to get the plague to stop, but nothing seemed to work. And in desperation, the elders of the city consulted one of their heroes, who was Epimendes, and asked him for advice. And he considered the situation, and he suggested that despite all the gods to whom they'd offered sacrifices, there must be one god whom they had missed. And so this was his advice. He was to take sheep of all different hues and colours. He was to allow them to, they were to allow them to graze on the hill of Iris. And as they grazed, whenever one of those sheep uh, sat down on the grass to rest, they were to offer up that sheep as a sacrifice to this unknown God. And that's what they did. And everywhere they offered up a sheep as a sacrifice, they built an altar to an unknown God. And it seems that Paul, what Paul saw was one of the remnants of that period of their history. And Paul uses it very effectively as a point of contact in his proclamation of the gospel. It was the door opener that the Holy Spirit uses to make connection with Paul's audience. And so as he does that, Paul goes right back to the beginning to speak of this unknown God as the God of creation one who could not be confined to some physical location as they were trying to do. He was the God who sustained them, the one who gave them life and breath. And Paul even quotes from two of their, pro, uh, two of their poets as another point of connection and speaks about this God as the one in whom we live and move and have our being, we see in verse 28, or indeed we are his offspring. He is the one who has made us for himself. And he goes on to speak about God is the God of history and the God of relationship. He desires that people everywhere might seek after him. And he goes on to say that same God commands everyone everywhere to repent 
because there's a day of judgment coming and the confirmation of that is seen in the person and the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection, of course, is the pinnacle, is it not, of the gospel message? It's God's stamp of approval on all that Jesus came to do when he came to seek and to save the lost. We're not privy to everything that Paul said on this occasion, but you cannot speak about the resurrection without speaking about the cross. You cannot speak about the resurrection without dealing with the issues of why Jesus came to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And so what we see Paul doing here is again starting where people are at. Finding that point of connection but ending up at the cross. Sharing the good news of Jesus and his substitutionary death on the cross for the sins of the world. A death that was vindicated by his resurrection from the dead. So that all who place their faith and trust in him might experience the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. And so what then does this chapter have to say about knowing where to start and what to say when it comes to sharing the gospel? It reminds us that we ought to sensitively and with great wisdom start where possible, where people are at, but we must always end at the cross. The very purpose for Jesus coming into the world in the first place and as we end at the cross, as we come to that critical message, we don't try to make the message more palatable. We don't leave out the reality of judgment and the need for repentance. We don't try to make the message more palatable to a society where each person has their own truth. Because as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, he declared there, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And we're reminded in Scripture too, aren't we, that it is the Holy Spirit's role who comes to bring conviction concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so when it comes to being on mission and knowing where to start and what to say, perhaps the place for every one of us is to pray and ask God for those gospel opportunities, but also to pray that God would give us the sensitivity and the wisdom to discern where people are at, to use those points of connection that will open up conversations that will enable us, as we pray for boldness, to take them to the cross, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, the gospel itself. And if we're a little bit hesitant in that area, there are tracks like Two Ways to Live or Two Roads, it's a simpler version, that can be very useful as a template to help us in sharing the gospel message. And I've left a few over there on the little table if anybody wants to take some after the service. But what about this morning if we face rejection or hostility when it comes to sharing the gospel? Well, this leads to the second principle that I want to share this morning very briefly, and that is this. That we be faithful is essential, but we must leave the outcome in God's hands. As we review the actions of Paul and his companions in this chapter as they sought to share the gospel, we cannot help but be impressed by the faithfulness of these men and the calling God had put upon their lives. 
We saw last week that Paul and Silas had already endured a beating and imprisonment in Philippi. This was on top of what they'd experienced on their first missionary journey when Paul and Barnabas shared the gospel in places like Iconium and Lystra. You may remember back to then how Paul was stoned and thrown out of the city and left for dead outside the city. And yet we find here in Thessalonica there was the threat of physical violence. Fortunately, they were not at home with Jason when the mob attacked his house. But they were forced to move on to Berea. And in Berea, of course, the threat of violence erupts again. And Paul, because he's the main target of their jealousy and anger, is sent on to Athens, as we've already mentioned. And whilst there is no threat of physical violence, what we have is a rejection that essentially attacked his reputation and his integrity as a servant of Christ. So mentioned earlier, Paul was accused of being a babbler, a seed picker, a scavenger, a bird that picks up missing pieces on the roadway. He was nothing more than a peddler, a charlatan, who was peddling bits and pieces of second-hand philosophy and ideas. What makes a person like Paul and his companions stay faithful when you have to face this sort of hostility and rejection? I think we get a bit of a hint back in verse 16 where we are told that Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. Yes, Paul was distressed. He was emotionally overwhelmed by the futility of everything that he saw. In fact, the word that is translated here as provoked or greatly distressed uh, is the same word that is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament to use to speak of God's displeasure at the idolatry of his people. You go over to Isaiah 65, 3, for example, we read there how God's people were provoking him to his face by their constant sacrifice to idols. They were literally shoving their idolatry in the face of God. So much so that God says they were smoke in his nostrils. It was a fire that kept burning all day. We've all heard the expression, haven't we, when somebody is so angry or upset with another person, it's like they have steam coming out of their ears. Or perhaps sometimes we say when something upsets us, we say to somebody, that really gets up my nose. You know, that's the same force of language that has been used here concerning the response of the Apostle Paul. He is reflecting the mind and the heart of God towards idolatry in all its forms. He was so concerned for the glory of God that he cannot remain silent. He could not but help share the good news of the gospel so that people might have the opportunity to be in right relationship with him. You know, the idols of our society may not be made of wood or stone or gold, but they're just as real and they're just as much an affront to a holy God. And we have to ask ourselves the question, is my concern for the glory of God such that I cannot help but share the good news of the gospel? You see, when our concern is for the glory of God, our focus is not upon ourselves and what people might think of us, but rather our desire is to advance the cause of the one who has redeemed us for himself the one who has brought us to himself through his sacrificial death on the cross. 
We will want others to experience the life that we have in Christ. And you know, the more the gospel touches our hearts and minds, the more that we meet around the Lord's table as we have this morning and we reflected on the truth of the gospel message, the greater will be our motivation to be on mission for Christ. To be on mission as those who are Christ's ambassadors, as those to whom have been committed the message of reconciliation, those whom God makes his appeal through to the world. And it is a motivation, I suggest, that understands that we are not responsible for the outcome of sharing the good news. We don't convert anybody. That's in God's hands. We were reminded last week, it's God who opens the hearts of people to the gospel and we are simply called to be faithful to all that God has called us to do. You know, as you read through these three, the, the, what happened in each of these cities, you will discover that the outcome is different on every occasion. In Thessalonica, we read that a great many of the God-fearing Greeks and many of the prominent women came to faith, but there were very few Jews, very few of Paul's own countrymen who were persuaded. In fact, it was the Jews who were the ones who became jealous and hostile towards his ministry. There was a much better response in Berea, however, with many responding to the gospel, both Jews and Gentiles. In Athens, however, we see a much more muted response. Some mocked, some procrastinated, and yes, some, very few it seems, responded to the claims of Christ. The very fact that Paul is actually, uh, Luke actually names two of those converts suggests that it was probably a very small group. In fact, there is no record in the New Testament of a church ever being formed in Athens. And Paul's example here brings to mind the truth that he would later share with the Corinthian believers over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where he said, we are not only servants of Christ, but we are also stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, the gospel is a trust that has been given to us, and it is required of stewards. What? Not to be successful, but to be found faithful. Yes, one person may plant the seed, another may water, another may gather in the harvest, but ultimately it is God who brings the increase. It is God who brings the spiritual transformation to the hearts and lives of those who respond in faith to all he has done. And because of that, we can safely leave the outcome in his hands. Our responsibility is to remain faithful in sharing the good news according to the gifts and the abilities God has given it and to do it with a sensitivity and a wisdom to where people are at with a boldness that points them to the cross and with a faithfulness that leaves the outcome in God's hands. God's call to us is simply this. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we are to always be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. You may have heard the story of an old man walking along the beach at dawn one day when he noticed a young man ahead of him picking up some starfish that were stranded on the beach and tossing them back into the ocean. And catching up with the young man, he said to him, what on earth are you doing? 
And the young man said to him, look, if, if I don't throw these starfish back into the, into the ocean, they're going to die in the morning sun. The old man remarked to him, but this beach goes on for miles and there are literally thousands of these starfish. Your efforts are not going to make any difference at all. The young man looked at the starfish that he had in his hand and he threw it into the water and he said, but it will make a difference to this one. And the challenge I want to leave with us this morning is simply this. When it comes to being on mission in our generation, may we be people who pray for opportunities of gospel witness. May we pray for sensitivity and wisdom in those opportunities. To know where to start, look for those points of connection. But also to pray for boldness. Don't leave them there, but take them to the cross. Pray for faithfulness and mission, despite any opposition or any difficulties we may have, but we always leave the outcome in God's hands. And lastly, pray that our, our faithfulness will make a difference, perhaps in the lives of just one. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it has so much to tell us, so much to encourage us with, so much to challenge us with. And Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would help us to be a congregation of your people who are not only on fire because of what we have experienced uh, in terms of our personal relationship with you, but also in our desire to communicate the gospel, the good news of Jesus with those who are yet to hear. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.